How do you figure out what to do with your trees when you don't know what you don't know? This is Jonas, and in this week's episode of the Bonsai Wire podcast, I sit down with painter and beginning bonsai student Cheryl McAllister, and we try to figure this out. I'm not sure we came up with anything, but we had fun giving it a try. Please join the conversation now. Yeah, I think it's it's extremely confusing to get started with this. I think someday it'll kind of, I mean, it's starting to come together for me, thanks to you and, um, you know, thanks to the kind of online research that I do and to Dave and stuff. But it's like learning to speak an, an Asian language, literally. Really, because actually you are kind of too, you know, with Nabari and Shari and... yeah. So when you're learning to paint and you've seen people learn to paint, is it as confusing? Because the most common beginner complaint for bonsai is, I see all of this information, it doesn't line up. I don't know what to follow. Is it the exact same way when you're learning a visual art that we're more familiar with? I think to a certain extent, because I remember when I was, you know, when I was teaching, we all had different methods. So um, I have a kind of a very holistic method. I used to tell my students not to make thalidomide drawings. And by that, I mean, do not start with the eye and expect it's you're going to build a proportionate drawing from just the eye. And in a way with bonsai, you do that too. You have to look at the trunk line and the main branches and work from looking at those two things. If you just deal with one or the other in an initial styling, you're going to wind up with a thalidomide tree. Well, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. And yet that's completely real. And it explains why I have better bonsai understanding than I do drawing ability. Yeah, no, it's really, you have to, <laughs> my, my, from my perspective, you have to draw the whole thing at once. But I've worked with people and I have had professors myself when I was in undergraduate school who had you, like I had one guy tell me to draw a leg to start. And I was like, oh, that'd be so hard. Okay. Because you and still have to visualize the whole body. You do. Before you draw it, you literally kind of have to work out where on the page it is. And if you don't get to sketch that out, then he's saying, you need the ability to visualize this. You need the ability to start here. And you need the ability to keep all that in mind while you're over in this other place. I couldn't do it. And and that guy, he's dead now, but he was, because I'm old, but he was, um, he was a very well-known illustrator. Wow. <laughs> How do you do that? You know, I used to tell my students to start with a gesture drawing and get a sense for the feel of where it's going to be on the page. Because some people aren't really mathematically inclined. I had colleagues who also asked students to draw the whole thing, but they were very mathematically oriented. They, they gridded it out and they, they looked at like the center line and, and in the axes and stuff like that. I don't work that way. I'm much more organic. And so it could be there are things that work for different people. That professor may have been the freak genius who could literally, oh, you want the leg? I'll draw a leg. Absolutely. And it's like, good for you. Whereas other people need those center lines or other people need to kind of gesturally sketch it into focus as they refine over time. Yeah, and so and what's hard like, about bonsai is we've got this 3D drawing with legs all over. And it dies. <laughs> and it might it die. Dies. It's horticulture it and art. Painting, drawing. the worst thing that can happen is you say, this sucks and rip it up, you know? That's right. It's not going to rip itself up in most no. cases, unless no. the wheel, unless you're the wheel, you're the pot you're throwing, the wheel spins too fast. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take someone out with it. But no, that's the thing. So I think the thing too is to figure out when you're trying to do this is to figure out what teacher speaks your language. You know, who can you understand? Um, and also like... Who's willing to put, who has the patience for the way you learn? 
because we all learn differently. So, you know, and we all have different ways of asking questions. And some teachers will have a different way of, you know, handling that. Um, and it, when you're a student, the worst thing in the world is to be afraid of your teacher. <laughs> you know, the worst thing in the world is to be afraid to ask a question because there are no stupid questions. If you don't know, you have to ask. Yeah. So if you think you're going to sound like a fool or the individual has given you the, ins the, the sense that you might be sounding like a fool, for some people that doesn't matter. But for me, that's, you know, I don't want to do that to my students and I don't want it done to me. And you're right. That's definitely true that people respond to that differently. And so you look at where the fear comes from and that gets back to the cost. And the cost of doing a poor drawing means disapproval from yourself or someone that you may or may not look up to that heartless or heartful teacher. Whereas in bonsai, the cost is it dies, it breaks, it, 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 it's a different level of cost that we just don't have in other inert visual arts. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is if bonsai, you can hide at home. You don't have to show anybody your trees. Um, when you're in studio classes, the yeah. whole class is there and everybody wants to be the star of the class. You know, yeah. everybody wants the teacher to go, oh, <laughs> it almost never happens, but still. Well, it's like learning bonsai within a workshop. Right, very much so. Absolutely. But then you've all got different starting points where someone has a 3D bag of legs and someone else has just the arms, say, you know, we all have different trees at different starting points, unless it's one of those beginner classes where everyone gets their percumbens nana and you go from there. And then the other thing that's tough being a beginning bonsai artist is to determine what good material is. And I've seen all over you know, the internet, different teachers saying, this is how you choose material. This is how you choose material. This is how you choose material. And in our club, we did a wild collecting trip. And we went, um, I went with another fellow who actually is also an artist, who's a pretty, uh, I would say he's a, an advanced intermediate bonsai artist. And then a couple of beginner people too. And the difference in what we were pulling out of the woods was very interesting because you, you gain that kind of, um, you know, when you're looking for material, what looks good to you and what doesn't and why, and you have to learn that too. And collecting is very hard. It's hard enough to pick the right trees when you're at a nursery, let alone a bonsai nursery. And doing that out in the wild is really hard. I've seen, it's a small number of people that can pull out the stuff that they think they're pulling out often. It's really tricky. We're, um, we're in an area that's good for larch. Mm -hmm. um, so the ideal thing to pull out are baby larch to do little forests with. No, fun. And, but um, the one fellow who he just disappeared up a trail that had bear claw marks and everything. I thought he was gone for good. I thought he was lucky. <laughs> but he went up looking for hornbeams. Ah. Um, I found a big larch with a lot of really interesting things. And then the other people were taking out baby larch that... Uh, I don't know whether they'll make forest with it or not, or if they're just going to try to develop them. But, if, you know, after a while, you're like, I've got enough baby trees. Yeah. You know, I want a tree. <laughs> yeah. Baby trees is part of it. And it doesn't mean it's the whole thing. No, no. So that's like, that's one of the things that, you know, that I think about is like, why would you do it? And for me, um, it's a lot of getting consistent information, having um, a resource to go to that I can bounce questions off of or ask is this right if it sounds funny or is this right if I've never heard it or um, how well it's interesting just thinking it through from continuing the 
you know, comparison to an art, the choice of material is going to have a giant effect on what we're doing with the tree. And it has a big effect on the techniques that we're going to follow. And it just, it's such a different thing to make that kind of mistake with other visual arts. So I chose acrylics instead of oils. Oh no, it'll dry faster. It's yes, the techniques are different. Yes, the effect is different. And no, we may not know which tools, whether um, and I can't pronounce any of them since they're all in French, you know, if I'm thinking of all the different kinds of things we can apply to paper or canvas or boards or whatever it happens to be, but it's a different kind of wrong. And so I'm trying to, I've been thinking, what does wrong mean in bonsai? We're picking up the wrong material. Does it mean that it's not suitable? And if so, by whose standards? And so are we just being snobby from a visual perspective or is there something else? Because it seems like Without that eye, we can't get that starting spot. In other words, it's like when we're walking around and we're trying to draw a person, we need to find two legs and two arms and some other stuff. But with bonsai, it's it's a little more abstract than that. It's very abstract. And and again, it's sculptural, you know. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. so used to thinking in two dimensions. This has been really exciting because it's 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 abstract and it's sculptural. Um, and there's time and, and it's very time dependent exactly you can't be in a rush because they just they grow when they grow you know um, and Dave says Dave Nittle always says look if, if you get to a point where you've got trees that just aren't enthralling you get rid of them and you know he's right not and I, he doesn't mean kill them he means pass them on to someone who mm -hmm. wants to work on that tree and I've done that I've given away uh, for a little while for about 18 months we lived in Florida so I had a bunch of tropical trees and there's a gentleman in our club who thinks he's from um, um, Palestine and ah. his trees are all tropical. So I gave him a bunch of trees because I don't want to mess with them anymore. They don't grow in Vermont. And it's like, I kept two and that's it. I have always loved Colin Lewis's um, suggestion to tell people to bring their best and worst tree to a workshop. And he's like, great. Now take your worst tree and throw it away. <laughs> Wasn't that in the, one of the podcasts? Yeah, when we talked to Colin, I asked him about that because I've been hearing that story for years. And there's a lot of variations on that. I remember when I got rid of a few years back, because um, I grow lots of little trees, and I got rid of my hundred least favorite trees in the garden. And you know what the first thing I was that I noticed the next day? What? The very next tree that I didn't like the most. <laughs> Oh, of course. You know, and I so when you've that. got a lot of trees, it's like, yeah, it, the more you like these things, the more interested you're going to be in figuring out how to work on them and take care of them. But again, when you're first starting, you've got one tree or a couple trees, and that's not even playing into it yet necessarily. So when I was in undergraduate school, we had a, a professor who said, rip up your drawing. Mm -hmm. And the reason was, don't be so precious. That's right. Don't be so damn precious. It's, it, you know, now, of course, you know, you don't want to do that, but, and, and I don't know about you, but I anthropomorphize my trees. So the idea of killing them feels a lot like murder. Yeah, someone else can take care of it. We always have someone else we can share the trees yeah, with. Yeah, there's someone else. There's every club has beginners who want to practice. Yeah. You know, so that's what I'm doing is giving trees to people who want to practice. What's funny is I remember the first time I saw wired bonsai was the first time it really clicked in my head that bonsai is interesting, but I didn't particularly love that tree. I just, there's something interesting about it. I can still see the moment I first saw this tree, you know, 27 years later, I remember that moment and I thought, huh, that's interesting. Not sure I like it, but it's interesting. 
And it's funny because I remember the first time I went to a ballet, I thought, because I have been, I had been repulsed by dance my whole life at the time. And when my cousin finally talked me into going, I thought, oh, you know what? I don't like this ballet, but I love ballet. And I subscribed the very next season and I started dancing a couple years after that. It was really funny to wait, have this experience. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You dancing? <laughs> yes. That's great. Oh, it was awesome because I start, I must have been around 30 at the time and everyone in class was at least 10 years younger than me and female. And I was the worst person in the room for the whole first year. It was absolutely hilarious. And nothing I've done in my life was more challenging. And what's funny is I think I'm actually more proud of what I did dancing than probably any other accomplishment because being the worst at something for so long in such an embarrassing situation, wearing tights in front of people you'd normally want to impress was, I just, you just can't take yourself seriously. It was one of the, it was one of the funniest things I've ever done. Like it, it was amazing. And I was doing kind of a jazz class with heavy uh, ballet technique and modern. So I was I literally within a couple of weeks of starting, I was going four days a week and I'd rearranged my schedule so I could dance four days a week. That's fantastic. <laughs> but the other thing that it says to me, and this is something that I think I noticed with learning, because I'm a bonsai learner, I'm an expert in some things, but not in bonsai, is how much courage it takes to be an adult learner. Yeah. You know, and I've seen it with my own students, but um, you forget when you're on the other side, you forget. But then when you do it, I think it's a really good thing for any teacher to do, to learn a new skill. And it's funny you say that I've not given that enough credit with other people that I work with having those same fears, because another fear I never had, I grew up in a retail nursery family business. And so tree care and just working with plants and seeing plants come and go, I took all of that for granted. I didn't know half as much about the topic as I do now, but I had literally gone to school and studied it. I had, you know, lived it in the nursery. I'd been propagating since I was a kid. And so a lot of these things just felt natural. So there were whole layers or categories of fear that wouldn't be there. It was more of the artistic would have been the only fear. And at that point, I was either young enough or dumb enough that I didn't, apparently I didn't have enough of that. And so that didn't get in the way as much, but I, it's very, very real for most of the people that I work with. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's so... I think just for that, it's great to get involved in something like bonsai because it's it develops your brain on so many different levels. You know, there's so much problem solving on so, I and mean, there's a scientific problem solving component, there's an yeah. artistic problem solving component. Um, and the artistic problem solving one is, I think, a lot deeper than we give it credit for because it's one thing to know what we want, another to do what we want, and another to make informed artistic either decisions or goals based on whatever our overarching relationship is to capital B bonsai at large. And that's the deep topic that just doesn't get investigated much because people lack the perspective, the exposure, and the technical skills. Right. We right. spend a lot of our time in those early stages. And by our time, that's most classes in most of the world are at that. Hey, let's keep this alive. Let's make it a little prettier category. Yeah. We've talked about that in our own club, the, that, that, that people get stuck at advanced intermediate. Mm -hmm. They get stuck in the place where, okay, but now how do I, yeah. Like, where is that art and, and where is it? 
there's one woman in our club who's another artist who does, I think she just does stunning, stunning trees. And somehow she's figured out how to kick past it. Um, but most people, myself included, because I'm still like, okay, but when in the year am I supposed to do this? You know, like yeah. with my deciduous trees, wait until they're growth positive. I know that now. I didn't know that a year ago. And I, you, you set your trees back. So... Yeah, and it could be that just a little bit of horticulture can unlock a whole lot of technical opportunities. Yeah. The other thing that I have found that really is very, very helpful is taking notes on my trees mm. so that I don't forget. Like when I meet with you, and this is something that would, would feed into, um, you know, when people are preparing for a meeting with a teacher like you, I take notes. And if I'm not taking notes when we're talking because we're talking fast, after I hang up with you, I sit down and write down everything I can remember that you said. Um, and then I can apply it because otherwise I'll forget, you know? Yeah. One of the guys I work with, he purposefully limits the sessions. Just, he's like, I can't take in any more than that at a given time. I kind of do too. Yeah. For the same reason. Like, and, and I've also found it helpful only to focus on one or two trees for that very reason. Um, so I can set my plan up. Well, and so that gets to an interesting topic that this wouldn't come up in a non-video world where most people, if you've got six people or eight people in a four-hour workshop, you know, that, that's half an hour each, but it's spread out over four hours and you get opportunities to practice typically before and after you have that interaction. But when you're saying, hey, you know what, we're just going to do the questions and just get to that, that's a lot of exchange within a 20 minute episode or some shorter amount of time. Right. It's a much yeah. more dense session. It's a different, very different experience. It's less performative, which is how so many people learn and much more intellectual and in that you need to figure out your questions ahead of time and or be open to what the questions might be so that when you hear the answers, you have kind of a framework for following through with any of that. That brings up something else too, which is um, learning styles. Mm -hmm. when when you're approaching it on a video I and I don't know whether this is harder for other I'm an auditory learner so for me ah. to hear you tell me stuff I got it you know I've got it and I can go apply it I would think that sometimes it's difficult if you can't see it being done for people and I would expect for bonsai in particular that's most people um, there's a guy I'm working with in Southern California that blows me away I don't know that he's ever had a lot of experience in classes, but he's had a lot of trees for a long time. And so we'll talk about five, six, eight trees, and he'll check in a week or two later and, oh, so see, I bent that branch and I wired that whole tree and I cut that one back. The guy is fearless. And it's, I can't tell you how interesting it is to see like a whole garden before, and then a number of days later to see that garden after, and he's done the work. And so he's prolific enough, you could say he's retired and he's just loving working on these trees that the refinement is taking a very different form where it's, you know, a little bit of health questions, a little bit of style guidance. He just plain does it. And then we talk about what he did a little bit and he'll ask, oh, you know, well, what can I do here? Did I do that right? Or this or that? And it's, it's an amazingly dynamic. It's almost like a stop motion sculpture coming together. You know, it's so funny. And so I, I just never would have guessed there's so many different ways to learn based on these short, more intense interactions and to see the results is just awesome. Yeah. I think that's great. Whoops. Hold on just a second. I just screwed something up that I wanted to move down. Oh, go away. 
Sorry, I just glance at my questions as we go too. Mm. I want to make sure I don't forget anything. Yeah, I think that's fantastic, but I think that you know that's something that when people are thinking about doing this, um, that they need to consider how they learn and think about. I mean, when I work with you, you draw pictures, you know, in order to get a concept across. Like, and I love that. I think that's just wonderful. You'll you'll do a little diagram of this and that branch and why here and not there, you know, something like that, which is just, it really, and I need to, and I need to do more of that when I start teaching in-person classes again, I think that that's going to happen more and more. I think I've already done that. Um, as I've had people come to the garden, even for one-on-one classes, just, uh, a lot of, because it's time-based it's, and like we said, it's so abstract, you know, we've got this bag of legs, where do the legs go? It's, it's tricky without giving someone something. And, Boy, 90 topics are coming to mind. Eric Schrader and I've talked about this a lot. The way I teach has close to zero overlap with how I learned. Really? Close to zero. And I still don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. And it might be good for some and bad for others. But I find it fascinating. Eric, it's the same way with Eric. And we teach a little differently from each other, but neither of us teach the way we were taught. Oh, that's really interesting. So then what made you decide to teach the way you do? Is it the way you wish you learned? You know, there's a couple from Boone. So, wow. Yeah. And Boone's a fantastic teacher for the people who find him a fantastic teacher, you could say. Right. And meaning when there is a good relationship there, it's a great way to learn. But there are a number of things that are going to make that not as good approach for some people. I think part of it is the goals of what the class is. And, and I still don't know if I'm right or wrong on this, but what interests me the most about teaching is trying to help someone figure out how to do something that they couldn't do before the class. And that's kind of my measure of success. If by the end of an interaction, that person has either answered a question or figured out a way to approach something that they couldn't do before, that to me is the goal of the teaching. Whereas when working with Boone is, you bring him the tree, he makes it pretty, and maybe you learn by seeing him do that. Mm-hmm. It's it's teach by example, as opposed to more of an exploratory, let the learner kind of determine where things are going. And I'll say for producing high quality trees quickly, Boone's method is probably way more effective. But in terms of developing someone at any level of expertise, I feel that letting the person be the focus is the more effective way. Yeah, the other thing that I really like is like, for instance, when when you're working with a student, asking them what they wanna do and then why they wanna do it. Like if you're gonna place the arm here or the branch, Mm -hmm. why? And how do you think that, what is it that you're looking, like get helping students to get used to that analytical place of like, you're making a, you're making a stylistic decision. I mean, forgetting, forgetting about the, the horticulture for a second, because sometimes you don't want to put a tree, a branch all the way down because, you know, right. you don't want to do that. It'll hurt the tree. But like just saying that you could, um, why, why, why is this important to you? How do you think this will, what do you think? Okay, because this is one aspect but it has to relate to the whole. So if you're doing this with this, how do you see it working? And then how do you see it working with the whole yep. to come up with it? And I like being asked those questions. I mean, I like the way you do that. Um, I like, I just like that. I like to be involved so that my, my opinions are important. You're the professional, but it's my tree. 
And that gets to the whole concept of what the artistic goals are specifically. Whereas when you learn with someone who's pretty much imposing their artistic input, you're going to create a lot of beautiful trees if you like that person's art, but it might not be your art. And that's one chance to lose people right there. And, and I think this comes back to my exposure to the broader art world is I I love it when people work on trees that I've started or worked on because I, I kind of know the range of what I'm going to produce, but I love seeing things go in other directions. And so it, it avoids me having an opinion on whether or not I think the work is good or bad or interesting or not as much as I really want to see what is this person thinking? What are their goals? How thought out is their artistic vision and how can we foster that? Because that seems really interesting to me. And that just seems like more of a if you abstract down a teaching role to nothing it's you know, what's inside this person and what could that be? And even if it's ridiculous, 90% of the time, it's, I still enjoy that process. And I find that it forces me to be more open and I learn so much more. It's like, Oh, I never would have thought of putting that arm over there. You're making me think of so many things, you know, it's, it reminds me when I was teaching, I used to tell the, the thing about, making the visual arts. I'm thinking about painting specifically because I'm a painter, but um, you know, sculpting too, is that there's something, what's so wonderful and what I think makes it different than photography is that distillation of a person's vision coming through them, through the eyes and then out the hands. And I used to tell my students that all the time. And I remember um, both as a student and then as a, as a faculty member, it's always interesting to see the work from different teachers because um, when students, students are pretty savvy and they can figure out how to get the grade. And there were always teachers whose students made work that looked exactly like theirs. You know, yeah. <laughs> and there were the people who, who let them fly. But then with bonsai too, I mean, if you look at traditional Japanese bonsai design, it's, it's really, it reminds me of the way they taught people to draw and paint in the 18th and 19th centuries in, in France, you know, where you're only working from uh, plaster casts. And it's it the has system. To, yeah, it's a system. It's got to be yeah, just- Yeah, the painters are copying. And right. that's, that's how you're learning. You're literally right. copying works and you're honing, really, really honing your, ex your technical expertise. Exactly. And you can't, and if you, if you try to riff, it's like, ah, no riffing, no riffing. No, no, no. Yep. You know, get this down pat and then, and then you can do your apprenticeship. And then maybe as a journeyman, then you can start to do a little riffage. And these were literally areas of curatorships that were the groups of the old white men that had decided that they happened to be cool among themselves. And it was these incredibly myopic uh, groups. And every once in a while, you'd get the band of radicals together and you'd have your fellow painters or whoever it would happen to be. And you'd You'd make the sky blue, but yeah. that was set against that backdrop that you're describing of that extremely conservative um, approach. Right, right, and so you know, then that's how you get like the Salon de Refuse when the when they you know that's how the impressionists got going. That's but right. it makes me think about like what happens in in I don't know anything about what they're doing in bonsai right now in Japan, but I've read um, like the Deborah Koroshoff book and stuff about like what it was like and what the rules, it's very rules-based. And certainly when you look at like Kokufu pictures and stuff, um, and then you turn around and look at the kind of stuff that 
you, you guys out on the West Coast are doing with crazy Yamadori that look like, what? <laughs> it's not the same thing. It's just not the same thing. Yeah, and so when you look over the history of visual arts, you look at who do we remember and why do we remember them? We love Rousseau not because anything he painted looked real. We love Rousseau because it looks like Rousseau. And it's funny that there's not the same amount of room for that in Japanese bonsai. There's not a lot of room for that in bonsai when you think about it. I mean, we love Duchamp too because of Duchamp. <laughs> and that's like... And there, so there actually is some Duchamp in bonsai because I have seen... Uh, deconstructed trees we've seen trees floated on balloons that have gone up into space we've seen upside down pots we've seen we've seen yeah, a lot of uh opposite things or found things as presented as bonsai that are very different there's that woman at mass mocha i can't remember her name but in massachusetts Institute, oh the trees yeah upside down growing trees and they change them out apparently <laughs> they get all annoyed because you know the trees are apically dominant so after a little while they refuse to do that so those poor trees nope Garbage yep. for you. <laughs> Replant the trees. Yeah, I know Bill Val Vanis has a tree in his garden where the tree comes out of the bottom and then kind of grows up around the side. Oh, cool. Apparently not a fun one to repot, but yeah. It's, I would uh... imagine that would be a nightmare. <laughs> but so that brings up so many other things, which is, uh, so I enjoy seeing all the different directions things are go. And I would love to hear more I would love to hear more engagement of the ideas of what it means to either pursue a model that we've seen before or to move in a new direction. And it's funny how students of people moving in new directions will often follow that direction because that's what excited them. That's what gets them going. It would be as if, you know, there wasn't one impressionist, there were a bunch of impressionists and we can group them, but they didn't necessarily love each other or follow a lot of the same beliefs. Yeah. And some of them were mortal enemies and their work at, in from many perspectives shares a lot. Whereas, uh, you know, in, in bonsai, we're seeing it's, you know, it's what you'd expect. This person's work excites me. I want to work with that. I want to emulate that. And then we'll see how things vary. But to actually define a look or a style or an approach requires incredible effort in bonsai um, for so many reasons. When you think, how many artistic decisions does one have to make before we can say this kind of decision is an indicator of this particular approach to this particular species, for instance? Mm -hmm. And we need to see patterns of artistic decisions where not for the health of the tree, but because you know, the arm could have gone here, here, but we're going to put it here and we're going to pose it like this. And to the point where that becomes a statement or something that we can identify or something that we can reproduce. Mm -hmm. In Japan right now, those decisions are incredibly subtle. Mm. And as Michael Hagedorn, I believe, said, it's as if they're working from the same artist statement. You know, they've they have right, 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 the right. same set of kind of shared beliefs. And so right. now we're finding more and more people that's not doing it for them. And I think to a large degree, a lot of people are struggling with what is our artist statements? What does it mean to come up with one? What, how might we define that? There's, there's something else that you're making me think of too. And I think that even before you do that, there's a level of knowledge that you need to have. Yep. I mean, it, I've thought about this a lot because there are idiot savants all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, I had students who blew my mind away who had never had a, I have a nephew. 
I can't call him an idiot savant because he's got me and he's got my sister's extremely gifted. But the kid, like at five, what he was drawing, we're like, what the heck happened to you? Where did this come from? <laughs> but um, there's a certain knowledge base that you absolutely have to have. And it, it makes me think about when you're playing an instrument. I'll, I, I'd be interested yeah. to know what Andrew would say about this. I mean, yeah. you really can't compose I don't think well. I mean, there have been loads of composers who could not read music, and and certainly a lot of the jazz pianists could not read music. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for the vast majority majority of us, we need the ba the basic skill set um, in order to do these things. In order to even understand, when you look at the very subtleties that happen in in, in a Japanese aesthetic, if you don't have that basic skill set down. Um, and in, in bonsai, it gets right down to keeping the darn thing alive. Yeah. Um, you can't do it. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so difficult. And the thing, you know, bonsai itself is time-based, but also that learning curve is very time-based. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, Until I you see the results of what you've done, it's incredibly hard to, to really digest those lessons it really is i mean speaking for myself this year is the first time i actually think things were clicking and i'm stunned by it all of a sudden i'm like oh you know um before that i felt like i had a whole bunch of paint brushes and like turpentine and i was like well what do i do with this stuff <laughs> and, and a staple gun yeah great what am i gonna do with that thing you know um it, it, it's really, this is not an easy thing to do. And you have to be willing to make a commitment because of the fact that they live for a long time. And even to the extent that in our club, we've lost a member. I have three of his trees now. Um, we're losing another member whose trees, apparently she was too ill to take care of them. And so mm -hmm. several of them died, but there are members who knew her who are trying to nurse the trees that survived back to health. I mean, you actually have to is it the word legate your tree, like leave your trees to, to, to people because right. they're alive. I mean, this thing is so time-based. Yeah. Um, but that gets back to visual arts too, because producing the visual, unless you're doing photography and, and what revolutionized the visual arts with photography was the instantaneity of it. But, but for those of us who don't do that, for those of us who make it come through ourselves, you can work on the same painting for years. Oh yeah. You know, that's also, I think, what makes it wonderful. Well, like music compositions, you know, look at how long Wagner took to create the ring cycle. That was, you know, decades went into that. And I've been reading, you know, I, I primarily listen to classical music. And when you look at how long the ideas gestate and come together and get re-coordinated from different works, it years and years, sometimes decades, can go into single discrete pieces of music that are less than an hour long. Yeah, absolutely. And then something happens in your life and, oh, I got that whole thing. I've got to edit it out, you know, yeah, that's, and that's that happens a because this, this is this new influence that I have, you know, yep. and then there's the other little piece that you sort of started to touch on before that I find very interesting. This is going totally in the art direction again, as usual with us, <laughs> um, is appropriation. Yes. So it gets back to what we were talking about with um, working with a teacher and absorbing their aesthetic and then you know all of a sudden your work is like 
I've got a Jonas here and a Jonas there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like yeah. that happens too because we're so easily, so easily influenced by, by frankly, by our betters. You can't help it. You love them, so you 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 suck it up. And what's interesting is that's so much less of an issue if you're all aiming in the same direction, which is how one might think of bonsai in Japan at a broad level, because it looks so narrow from the outsider's perspective. It's as if they have a lot of really shared goals. Again, in subtleties, there's a lot of differences between that. And so then instead of looking around the garden and seeing, oh, there's my teacher's look there and there's my teacher's look there, it's more like there's a good bonsai there, there's a good bonsai there. And so that's not, you're not going to be able to make that distinction unless you have the perspective where you can tell, again, the patterns of artistic decisions person by person by person. And that's, that gets back to, you know, where does great art typically come from? Uh, great talent, uh, great perspective and incredibly hard work over long periods of time. Yeah, I think that it is incredibly hard work. I've, I've talked about this with my husband several times because he was um, he was a nationally ranked diver and oh, wow. to teach it. And he talked about having students who were, you know, once he was teaching it, he um, students who were just gifted, but didn't work that hard. And then he'd have other students who just busted their humps to achieve this like thing off of a diving board, which would make me sick. And, you know, those people tended to go further. Yeah. You know? I was and- going to say, it's like that in business showing up is 80, 90% of it. If you work hard, there's a lot of reward in artistic endeavors. It's work does, is not the only thing it can be great, but at some point there needs to be, there doesn't need to be. It's a lot easier when there's something other than just the work. I think too, though, I think people forget that, that art, artistic expression, I believe that it's innate in all human beings. I think that it gets pounded out of us and frightened out of us. Mm-hmm. But I've had so many people say to me, oh, I can't draw anything but a stick figure. And my thought is, yes, you can. All I have to do is show you a couple of little vocabulary pieces. Yeah. And yes, you can. But it's there. You know, some people are more more brave, perhaps, than others. I don't know what, but we all have it. We all have it. And so there's so many ways of looking at that, which is you just, you may not have drawn anything other than a stick figure at this point, but that doesn't say anything about the future. And there are so many different kinds of ways to be artistically expressive, depending on how much, and who knows how much investment it would take. Uh, you're right. People are going to get to wherever they're going to get, but it's going to be a reflection of that engagement with that. And that's going to be some amount of work, some amount of openness to learning, some amount of trial and error, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's fun to see just, well, where is that going? Where is that coming from? And that's, what's funny about bonsai, which is, are we trying, you know, what are we trying to make the trees look like? Is it miniaturization or is it something else? And I think that there will probably always be some tension right there. I'm just curious. What do you think? I mean, are you going for miniaturization or something else or sometimes both? Uh, It's not just making small nature. To me, there's no art beyond technical art if we're just aiming for small. And there's kind of two components to that. One is 
the scale becomes borderline impossible when we get small. If we're making a small redwood, the branches and trunk and everything would have to be so, so skinny to preserve that perspective precisely that that's just not going to be possible. So then all of a sudden we're opening up a door where we are suggesting miniaturization. And that's where the technique is going to let us say, well, we think of redwoods as having these characteristics. And if my goal is to make my redwood evoke redwoodness, there are some characteristics I might want to preserve or look for in my tree. Maybe I want a straight trunk. Maybe I want downward drooping branches. Well, are they downward drooping? Am I trying to evoke a young redwood or an old redwood? And so that's one way of looking at it. And as you, we could easily spend an hour on every one of those tiny little bits of it. The other half of it is bonsai is a relationship between a person and a plant. And I find it very uninteresting when there's no person in that dynamic. It, it's a very boring equation. If we walk into the mountain and dig up the tree and put it in our garden, that's a different kind of art. It's like finding a piece of driftwood on the beach and putting it on the wall. It might be absolutely beautiful, the most amazing thing nature has done. But when we think of it as a reflection of, you know, what are we bringing to that? We're finding the front of the driftwood, we're aligning it, we're finding a, a we're helping people see something in it that we see. And that does require an eye, that does require artistic perspective. But for me, I want to see something of the person. It's not just digging up something and saying we're done. It's not just making it small and saying we're done. And that opens a lot of doors and makes it really interesting. At least for me, I find it fascinating. So you're, you're sort of saying find the driftwood, but then work on it. Because like just as you were start, sort of saying, the ability to recognize the specialness of the driftwood says something in the first place. Oh, I see the specialness of the driftwood. Look Which, at the driftwood like this. Like look at the look at the look at the urinal upside down type of thing too. Have you thought of it like this? Yeah, and um, I was meaning literal driftwood on the beach, not even a bonsai driftwood. But you're right. That's exactly it. It's like the stone hunters, the the rock hunters, or suiseki. It's right. it's there. We're bringing our eye to this, and that's right. that's the very important part of that pursuit is our ability to discover and see something interesting and then framing what we've seen in a way and by framing not you know metaphorical framing but that's what you know the dies or the display will help uh, guide us to what the uh, artist saw in that case right like if you have a suiseki and you put it in its little container and you uh -huh. put its environment or you're like oh there it is i didn't see that when it was in the stream yeah there uh Mas Nakajima, who passed away a few years ago, um, his work has just been featured in a book. And I was flipping through that a couple days ago. And it's absolutely fantastic. It showcases a lot of his best work, really good, clear photography. And I think it's it might be the best case that I know of to make a case for Suiseki to non Suiseki people. I know that's not going to be an easy ask of a lot of people. Oh, it looks like a horse. Oh, it looks like a this is going to be really easier. Oh, it looks like a mountain. But I think they did a fantastic job in putting this book together where you can see 
how he chose the stone, what kinds of stones he chose, what kind of a frame, or in this case, the daiza that he crafted for these stones, how he orients the viewer toward it, and then what kind of story he's telling by doing this incredibly simple act of taking two imperfect natural things and putting them together. I think he, he said something like that about it. But it's been really fun kind of figuring out that orientation component of the art, which is really one of the core things we do with the tree. You really are talking about, though, like an artist's voice, an artist's signature, an artist's voice. Like when, when you can get to the point where you're bringing, when, when a person can look at a work and say, oh, that's a Dupuis. Ah. You know, I mean, there's, there's something really special about that. Yeah, and when I saw the book, I th literally, I put the book down and the one thought in my head was, Moss was really, really good. And yeah. I don't know that even though he is known as being like pretty much the you know great teacher around or a great teacher around, it made me feel, wow, I feel like his work is really underappreciated because knowing that how much, how often Suiseki is shown in a bonsai context and we're all walking by and, oh yeah, it looks like a mountain. And that's kind of our experience, but by seeing really close up what he's doing. And I've, you know, I knew Moss for years and years and I've seen most of these stones in person. It actually helped orient me to understand more of what he was doing. And I felt I learned a lot, literally just looking at these photos and I thought, yeah, he's doing great work. I would love to see that book. Yeah, it's a cool book. Not a cheap book, but it is available online. I think I posted a link to it a few weeks back. I can send you that yeah, if you're curious. Back to the blogs and find it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's really neat stuff. And so what do you think about that where the, uh, the miniaturization versus a little bit of art versus the person versus what we collect? How do you think about that? I'm just starting to think about it a lot now. I'm just starting to get to the point in my making bonsai where I can really ask myself, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Because when I first started, I thought I was supposed to copy a traditional Japanese tree so that it would have sort of an apex and it would have pads coming down and it would be a triangle. And so for a while, I had a bunch of triangles or baby trees, triangles and baby trees. And I'm starting to understand now, and no, I, I actually don't wanna make miniatures. I wanna make, I'm much more interested in, in, in a more sculptural question. Um, I want them of course to be very healthy. That's my first goal. Um, but I'm really interested in creating it for itself, that it is its own thing, that it isn't a big tree and it isn't a baby tree. It is a thing, you know, and, and, and look for that thingness. And, and starting to think about what are they telling me when I'm looking at them? Like what, they tell you the direction they wanna go in. Like if I, if I look at a trunk line now and it's a, at the point where I can still bend that trunk line, trunks almost always, unless it's like me, they almost always have a little curve someplace. So they're telling me where I want, where does it wanna go? Where does it wanna go? Where does it wanna go? And then I can look at the arms and say, are there any arms here that might want to follow that. So they're very, they're hyper stylized in the sense that trees don't do that. I, I tend to love repetition and I tend to look for really interesting negative spaces between the branches. That's what I'm looking for. And that's not normal. I mean, in a tree. So what I'm making isn't anything like a regular tree. 
Well, and are our models regular trees or are they the exceptional trees? And something that you'll hear more and more people talking about, what are the ages of the trees we're reproducing? Are the models the trees on the upward slope of path where there's increasing size and vigor? Or are, are our models on the at the crest or on the downward direction as the trees weaken, as they drop major branches, as they take on um, kind of visual representations of the tenacity of their <laughs> their declining existence. And, mm -hmm. and I think if we were at, oftentimes our artistic decisions uh, come back to which points on that arc are we using as starting points, or at least which points on that arc might inform our work. That's a better way to say it, because it's not like we're just, it seems too simple for me to say, oh, I'm just reproducing this stage. Some people will do that, but there's so many different kinds and styles of bonsai. We have near view trees, which are not representing a bigger tree. We have small view scales, those cute little, or far view trees, those little cute zelkova. No one's saying that there's that that there's a zelkova that's eight inches tall, that's taking on this broom form from nature. Like you say, there is your hyper stylized version. But full size trees look like that all the time. That's not yeah, unusual at all. We tend, I have a thing in, a, in the newsletter I do where you know, I, I've been asking people to go out and take pictures of really cool trees in nature. Mm -hmm. And a few people have, I do it all the time because they're out there. Yep. You know, the, the, the tree that looks like a cascade actually is a real tree. They're, they're there, you know, or we have a tree up in our woods that's got a big hole right in the middle of it and it's still alive. And yep. it's growing up around this big hole that looks rotted out. It's so weird, but the outside is alive. Um, there, there's just all of, it's there. Um, but I think what you're saying is a really, it's an important question when people are trying to make bonsai to have this dialogue with yourself. At some point when you're looking at your tree to talk about that with yourself and ask yourself, you know, who am I looking at here? You know, who are you? What will you be? What do I want to focus on? Where are you? It's almost, I like it because you can pretend. You know, like I pretend these trees are like I'm little underneath the tree. And what am I experiencing? Because I'm weird. Um, uh, that's not uncommon at all. And what I will often tell people is any story is fine for your trees, but I want your story to make sense. If it's if the trunk is growing that way, why are all the branches going in the other direction? You get to answer that question. And I want you to give me a consistent answer, but you're free to choose whatever answer you are. And that's probably the English major in me. But I say that all the time. You know, can you give me a consistent or a coherent story? Whereas I want, and you don't have to do it, but that's the way I think of it because it is a living thing. And at some level, if a tree is evoking treeness, we acknowledge that trees are living things and that there's a reason they did what they did. And so, great, let's hear the reasons. Jonas, I used to say exactly the same thing to my students about painting. There <laughs> has to be some sort of internal logic. And you see it in color. Um, you've got to have logic in your color. I mean, you don't. You can make it work without it. You can take that big blob of red and stick it in there and make it work. And even if it's an accident, because great accidents happen. Oh yeah. Pulls off the bench and it's like, oh, that branch broke off and it looks great. Or not. You have to be able, even that, that's a choice that yeah. has to be able to be answered. Or like when you're looking at the way light plays across form, when you're making a painting, the shadows have to be consistent. If they're not, somebody's gonna look at that and go, 
that is really wonky. Right. And so, you know, exactly. And so this leads to how I describe that in more detail. When some shadows are doing some things and some shadows are doing in other things, I, I look at that drawing and I'll say, what is this person trying to tell me by doing that with the shadows? Or why is that clock melting? Or whatever the examples happen to be is you assume that they are calling attention to something. And then based on the context, that person's work, a million different things, we can read things or we can just know to ignore them because, oh, it's Ron Bosch. There's just like crazy crazy stuff happening all over the place. It doesn't, but there's, that's because we have a context or kind of a framework for what we're thinking of for that. And with bonsai, people say, oh, can I use a glazed pot for a conifer? Can I do these styles that make sense? And I'll often say, of course you can. What a bonsai person will think when they see that is, oh, that's interesting. The convention is to do X, Y, or Z. You've broken that convention. What are you trying to show by that? What are you trying to demonstrate by that? Because there is kind of a shared exposure that all of us have to different degrees that will be informed by what we've seen online, what we've seen in person, trees in different parts of the world, different species of trees. And bonsai is highly, highly conventionalized. And I don't hear the term convention used enough. We like saying there's rules and some people love following the rules and some people love uh, breaking the rules. And I still am waiting for someone to hand me a copy of the rule book. Yeah. Well, you They're have conventions. Michael Hagedorn who wrote the how to break the rules book. Right. Right. And, but um, it, we're, we're presupposing the rules or it was a rule to that person, for instance. Yeah, yeah. No, it's reminding me of a conversation I had last weekend with Dave Niddle where he, I was looking at his trees and um, he has a, a large larch with a great big mother trunk on it and the thing comes straight up and it's got bar branches on it. And I said, well, that's really interesting, Dave. What about those bar branches? He's ah, forget about bar branches. You know, forget about bar. I need the branch there. It's so, oh, well, it's across from that one. So I bent that one down and that one up and it looks really yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, it's like, yeah, of course, because if he whacked it off, he would have had a thalidomide tree. So, <laughs> and that's what I try to explain is it's not that it's, and it's, it's not that it's not problematic either. It's fine for there to be a bar branch. I might pay more for a tree that doesn't have a bar branch. If all things being equal, for instance, mm-hmm. and that will depend on my aesthetic sensibility. If the bar, if I find a bar branch in a certain case, distracting or if it's causing some awkward swelling, I can either, if, if you have that tree, you have to make the decision whether or not to live with it. And if you need the branch, you need the branch, you live with it. But if someone else had the exact same tree without that bar branch, which of the two would you bring home if you were shopping? And that's where we are kind of interacting with our biases. We're interacting with our um our relationship to what's acceptable or not, or what we find attractive or not. And sometimes bar branches will be fine. And sometimes we won't find them fine. It also reminds me though, of what you just said about if I put a glazed pot on a conifer and a bonsai person comes and says, Oh, that's not conventional to put a glazed pot on the conifer. It's the same thing that I felt was my reaction to the bar branches on the bonsai. I could see that it worked. I can see, I could see why he made that decision, Yeah, but I noticed it. You know, it's yep. like, oh. and or, again, you know, you think about a Cezanne making a, remember when Cezanne painted things that look like they should flip off the surface. 
Yeah. Talk about getting rid of all the conventional rules. And then Picasso went even like, because he loved Cezanne, he would like forget surfaces altogether. We're going yeah. whole hog. You know, I mean, it makes you ask and question and think about that. Definitely. And that's where, that's where the, I think that exact example you just gave would be a good example that would work for a bonsai learner at any level of their journey. And I think it, there's actually room to start getting people thinking about things at different levels where a lot of teaching involves experts with deep experience who thought about these things, or at least done the work years after year after year. And trying to emulate that as a beginner is going to be really challenging, especially knowing how inside and outside bonsai, how popular the term intentionality has become. And I have so many examples of wonderful art that is definitely not done by intention. And I don't just mean John Cage. There are lots of wonderful and beautiful things we experience all the time that we didn't do on purpose. And when we think of intentionality in a context of we dug something up out of the ground and just found it all, intentionality is only being applied to how we orient the tree and to what we do with the foliage. It, it's funny, I keep coming back to this year, how simple bonsai is. All we can do to a tree is uh, remove foliage or redirect foliage. We also can, and then we can orient the viewer. Those are the primary things we do with bonsai. Mm -hmm. It's it's reductive and it's uh, redirection. It, and so in that point, it's sculpture when you're starting with marble, not sculpture starting with clay, unless you're building a tree from scratch. And then it is a, a kind of a different ball game. Yeah. And intentionality might mean something very different, but I think there's lots of room for beautiful bonsai without intention at a certain level because we don't make trees grow the trees grow we're going to cut a branch and the tree's going to throw a bud and we have pretty good ideas how that's going to happen but the tree's the one that decides to put the branches where where they go mm -hmm. that, I, I got another thought you keep saying stuff that it's like listening to i feel like i'm listening to fertilizer um the <laughs> The other thing I- As in this is a bunch of manure? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not that kind. More like biogold. Um, I was thinking about when you're dealing with students, because the people who come to Bonsai are primarily adults. And in my experience, they're primarily adults of a certain age, as they say in French, um, for a whole host of reasons. But one of the things that I think it's really important for all teachers to do, but bonsai teachers in this case too, is to consider the fact that these people are coming to this art form with fully formed backgrounds. And that those fully formed backgrounds can really inform what they're doing in an interesting way. And I think that that's very valid. And I think it's really, really important to consider that when we're talking to people and to, I mean, I, I, I can only speak as a person who taught people to draw and paint for a long, long time. Um, but to ask them, you know, who they are and where they're from and why they think about this, because it's there. And I think that students like to be validated, you know? Well, so that's a great way to get us back to teaching. I have found, oh, in two different contexts, some of my all-time favorite teaching opportunities were when I was teaching non-bonsai people. And so just last week, I did my first virtual workshop where 
a company, a prominent company bought trees for everyone on the team. They sent him the trees and then we all joined an online meeting and I gave the briefest of introductions and people literally started pruning and working on their trees all simultaneously when I'm looking at these little squares on the screen. And I think every one of us was just laughing the entire time. You saw every personality of learner. You saw every learning style. Everyone's hearing everyone else in their earpieces, but they're literally going at it. And it was revealing their personalities. It was revealing um, so many different things. And then it's giving me an awesome perspective on how many different directions people can go and what the most obvious things are to correct. And so that was just incredibly fun. Non-bonsai people doing bonsai, great. I did another corporate gig a couple of years ago where I taught, I think it was six 25-person classes back to back to back, where for one hour, a room full of people would just appear, pick up a tree, prune it, wire it, and head out all within 60 minutes. And after dealing with over 100 people in such a short amount of time and literally being the only teacher for a room full of people, really interesting to help four or five people at once. Um, not only was it a ton of fun, but almost everyone had a great time. I learned a ton about the breadth of the response people can have to trees, but the over overarching goal and both of, or overarching theme in both of these cases was how much fun they had and how good they were because they weren't bonsai people. So the bonsai stuff didn't get in the way. And so what you just said about all of that, um, what we bring as fully formed people to the table doesn't get in the way if it's not your thing. And so that's only half of that whole idea. The other half is what I love about bonsai shows are when my friends, coworkers, whoever, who are not bonsai people show up and I have artistic bonsai discussions with them. And I'll just say things like, does the tree point left or right? And they're like, what do you mean? I'll say, I don't know. Just does it point left or right? And they'll answer better than most of the people in the bonsai club. And then you say, why? And you hear them start thinking it through. And so we have all these great shortcuts for teaching and learning bonsai, but the bonsai stuff gets in the way so often. It does. It does. And I think I found that, I don't know, you, I mean, you're a person who went to school to be a writer and I don't know if you find, I mean, I know you love to write, um, but it's still all of that information is, it weighs heavy. I mean, I know as a person who went to school to be a fine artist for a long time, <laughs> that stuff weighs heavy. It's, it's always on my shoulder. I hear it all the time. Every you know, I can kind of ignore it a little bit now and do whatever I want, but it's there. It's a suitcase that I carry around with me. Well, you could um, say my MFA was to teach writing, interestingly. And so, what? It, yeah. So I, even though I have a master's in literature, which is not writing, it's actually just studying literature and a basic mm -hmm. English degree means almost nothing because it can mean so many different things. Mm -hmm. But I specifically went to grad school just to teach composition. And then on top of the literature degree, I did a certificate to teach composition very specifically. And so we studied research in how to teach writing and that very much informs how I teach the way I do. I understand yeah. concepts like scaffolding and um, 
and thinking about distilling how you're teaching something from what you want to learn. Is literature a good way to teach someone to write or is nonfiction a good way to teach how to write? And I think of all of these things, it's, it's actually had a really big influence on how I teach. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Mine was um, in visual, basically visual culture. Uh-huh. And I focused on painting and performance art. And it was oh, about, yeah. you know, structuralism and post-structuralism. Bam, huh? bam, bam. <laughs> Postmodernism, bam, bam, bam. It, it, just all of this bam, bam, bam. What are you doing in painting? Why are you painting? And like... Well, that can be really helpful. So my first class in graduate school, it was more or less introduction to being an English graduate student. And we read nothing but Edgar Allan Poe from the perspective of structuralism, of postmodernism, of psychoanalysis or environmental or feminist or whatever. And we had all of these different frameworks as our absolute introduction. And I got really lucky. I had the professor I did because she was fantastic. And it gave us that perspective. I mean, it definitely threw us in the deep end and we all laughed and Interestingly, it was such a hard class. We all bonded and became friends for the entirety of the program <laughs> because it, we had to talk each other off the ledge frequently to find out what, what does that mean? Sure. What is yeah. a hermeneutical exegesis? What is she saying? God. Oh, I haven't heard those words in so long. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and when she's telling us about apotro- ap- apotropaic characteristics and we're just like, what? like these aren't even words in the dictionary. We had to look never, up the roots of these things to put them together. It was great. Did anyone ever say to you, phonic, it's phonic. And you're like, <laughs> phonic. phonic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I had this bad habit at the time where whenever I read a book, if I didn't know the word, I'd write it down and then teach it to myself. And of course, now the sieve of my brain is let go of those. But yeah, yeah we, we did that all the time. And uh, and it was it was it was really and fun. I guess it really does inform you and it does inform the work with bonsai and what you're doing. And like it, one of the things that it makes, I always ask, who's it for? Who is it for? Yeah. You know, and in the case of bonsai, um, my friend Jay, who passed away, always said, it's your tree. Who's it for? It's your tree. That's what I say is I say it lives in your backyard. Well, what should I do? I know what I'd do if it was in my backyard, but if it's in your backyard, and I'll happily tell you that as an idea, because clearly you're looking for some ideas. But if you love that branch, that branch has to stay. Let's see how it can enhance the overall look of the tree. You know. I think that's wonderful. That's why I love being your student. Because I think that that freedom is so vital and so important. And sometimes you just love the damn branch. You know? So now are we more psychology or more art student, you know? And it's funny. It's not, it's not, neither is totally divorced from the other. Yeah, no, it's, it, they're not. It's, it, in the end, it, it tends to all be the same thing. It's just like, but I think what you said before about the people in the class with the hundred people just going at it. Mm-hmm what it in the end what it really still i hope can stay is joy you yeah. know i don't want to lose the joy of it i wouldn't want to see anyone lose the joy there is joy in this though i mean they're going up what hiking up a hill and finding the perfect tree there's such joy in that even if you get it down yeah. you find out oh darn it it has a swelling right in the middle that i didn't see or just even the joy of being with the other people who like to talk about trees because it's a little weird. Not a lot of people want to sit and spend hours talking about trees. Oh, it's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it's weird, you know, like it's like, oh. But you're right. It's the joy. It's, there are valid social reasons for doing bonsai. And when it comes to collecting, walking around, paying attention to nature is pretty darn great. These are just really fun activities. 
Yeah, and it's like when you're when you're teaching someone how to draw for the first time or how to paint, but mostly to draw, they become very aware of negative spaces because that's a very yeah. important part of the vocabulary. They they really start looking at negative spaces. So wherever they go, my students used to say, "Oh my God, I'm looking at the space between everything now." Yep. And the same thing happens with trees. When you start really loving trees, you cannot drive safely down the road. I mean, my husband has to drive all the time because I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, you know all the trees are so interesting. Look at that tree. I have a very rich map of the places I go frequently because I know the trees, and I've been doing that since childhood. Oh, right. Growing up, paying attention to plants and gardens, and so yeah, I can tell you where examples of trees are and what things look like or where to look for things. And I walk around town all the time now, and I can tell you a lot about the trees in my hometown. That's so interesting that you were raised on plants. You know, like. It's an interesting starting. I kind of couldn't have asked for more that I have a background in uh, writing. I have a background in teaching. I have an interest in photography and plants and all these things. And it's just, it's, it's a fun, very coincidental mix that all has helped me make. And I'll, I'll leave out the technical parts, but the technical backgrounds that have helped me do what I do as well. It all has kind of made it a perfect background for what I do now. Uh, even all the corporate work I did for all those years and the software design and different things, I was learning how to understand what requirements are and then help people achieve those requirements. And so it's still, it's working with people, finding out what we're really going for. And it's speaking in front of groups of people. It's trying to learn how to be effective in those different contexts. And it's, that's what I do now. You know what it comes through because you can tell you're happy. It, it's, it's, like, it's much it's happier like now. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. It so speaking of happy and so happy, I have a funny example. You'll either love or hate this. I bought a tree from a guy that I thought was just wonderful. And I said, well, why are you selling this tree? He said, well, I want to cut this branch off, but my teacher won't let me. And I'm like, well, is it your tree or is it the teacher's tree? Yeah, but the teacher won't work on it with me if I cut that branch off. And I don't really want to have this tree if I can't cut that branch off. And I said, I'll happily buy the tree. And um, and I'm not going to cut that branch off either. But like, it's your tree. And he's like, nope, nope, it's yours. I can't deal with this. Wow, really? <laughs> yes. I still have the tree. It's a great little tree. It's story. It's funny. It's it's funny and it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, it's but it's funny. it really comes down to it, and it's a perfect example of what's our relationship with our trees. What's our relationship with our teaching? Where does fear come into it? And these things are all very real, and they have a big impact on our relationship with it. And I get that it's a lot easier to not fight that battle. I actually have a lot of students who bring the trees their teachers won't work on to me because my goal is to help them not necessarily make good trees great and and we need all of those teachers i want teachers to make good trees great because that's going to make better shows and i love seeing great trees yeah yeah, yeah. but there's a lot of ways to do bonsai uh not everyone is going to join a club. Not everybody is in a club to show off their work. Not everyone showing off their work wants to win a prize. We have all of these different levels and there's a lot of different ways to contribute to the bonsai community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to be getting bigger and bigger. And it's really getting much bigger and it's a lot bigger than we think because what I've learned this last year is how many people are taking bonsai really seriously outside of the club system? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very, very exciting. I want to um, 
before I let you go, I wanted to ask you just to make sure, because this is also this conversation I want to write up from my, my, my own uh -huh. club. When a student wants to study with someone like you and they're going to be working, I mean, I'm talking to you from Vermont and you're in San Francisco. Um, personally, what I do is I, I take my trees, if I can lift them up to my studio because there's a blank wall there mm -hmm. and I have lights in there. So, and then I always have a list of questions prepared. Do you find that helpful for you when you're dealing with a student? Like, how do you want it to be? How do you, what, what works for you as a teacher? That's actually the questions? ideal. One thing that surprised me more than anything, and I realized this in the very first couple online sessions I did years ago, it is really surprising how much detail you can pick up from a poorly lit, shakily held phone image. Really? And so when you're used to seeing trees and pretty much every bonsai teacher has a really good eye for detail. And so even as a tree is flashing across the screen, you say things, or I hear myself saying things like, uh, wait a minute, were those needles a little more yellow in that area? Or um, I noticed that that area was kind of thin. How long has that happened? Or you start picking up things like inconsistencies in density, inconsistencies in color, um, little tiny things can show up surprise with surprisingly little detail but in terms of what's ideal any clean background decent lighting it makes a giant difference okay. and uh holding it can be handheld or what i do is i have a small little tripod for my phone so i can kind of park it and that way i know that i'm not shaking around for them or if i'm showing oh. them examples that yeah i've always got my phone on this tiny little uh little cheap little gorilla pod kind of thing and it, oh. it makes it that's why if it's moving around, it's because I'm literally moving it around, but otherwise it's just parked right there. And, yeah, yeah. and so holding the camera still can make a difference, but I actually find I prefer the handheld because then I can say, oh, let's look over there. Can you back it up a little bit? And mm -hmm. it ends up moving around, whereas the session's done through laptops. Um, it's often I'm far away from the trees and it's harder for me to see the detail sometimes. But mm -hmm. in general, the technical, very surprisingly, has not gotten in the way that much. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. And so when you have the clean background and the good lighting, it's super easy to see. You've got a turntable, you're moving things around. That's, that's just, that's the ideal. That's fantastic. Okay. Okay. But I've seen people do it. Some people just show me they're most often walking around their gardens. And so they just, if they have uh, coverage outside, then um, that, that works really well where that way we can go through a lot of things. Because sometimes we'll focus more on specific trees. Sometimes it'll be more of, oh, I'm seeing this in this part of my garden. And here you can see this one's doing that, that one's doing this, which is normal. Are they both normal? And so it's a good way to get perspective on overall health, on timing of things, on uh, just kind of how the last approaches from the previous season are yielding results now. Um, it's again, it's, it's as many ways as you can imagine this going, it can go. Whereas you've been interested in very specific artistic, where do we go from here questions. And so the format of putting it in a clean background where we can see it well has been really conducive to answering those questions. Okay. Whereas other people say, most of my pines are doing this, but these are not doing that what's going on. And so we troubleshoot that. And that's where it's helpful to be out in the garden. Gotcha. Cool long answer but it's it's it really is uh a broad in the number of things that can work yeah oh cool okay i'm trying to think i those are all of my questions i've got like 
everything answered pretty much. Awesome. I feel like we covered a couple extra topics as well. Amazing conversation. Every time I talk to you, I'm like, whoa. Well, you inspire me all the time. You know, you inspire me to do research and to write about things. And well, likewise, I couldn't read your last newsletter article without marking it up. I was so afraid that I drove the pork club crazy with that because I thought they're not going to care about this. But then turned out some of them did. Some will. And that's the thing is so I have discussions with my friends and then I hear these friends have conversations with other people. And then if that gets published and that's something for us to respond to, and then you respond to that and then I respond to that. And here we are talking after the fact. So more and more I think we're finally getting around to having more grown-up conversations about bonsai uh, from an artistic perspective, just leaving it at that. I'm and, so glad and I love that kind of stuff because I realized years ago that my favorite thing in the world is responding to art. And when I realized that that's what I enjoy, it you can put a hammer in front of me and I can respond to it as art if that's what we're doing. And I, I, I still remember the day I realized I like modern art. And so there are all of these things that inform how we respond to trees. And so when someone brings you a half dead thing salvaged from a dumpster to nursery, and yes, that has happened dozens of times over the years. Great. Let's talk about where we can go from here. Oh, that's just wonderful. This has been, this is so much fun. I have to tell you, I could go forever. I'll probably drive you crazy. So we'll have to do it again. This was super fun. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue. I could just do this and do this.